it takes a lot of kind of repetition for an image to work its way so deeply into our imaginations that it becomes really common and ubiquitous and we don't any longer question it. Like this, these images become our givens. They move from like a novelty to a meme where everyone kind of knows what's going on there. We already start to laugh at the setup before the punchline comes because we know what's coming, right? The one I'm thinking of is the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. Have you guys seen this? Does anyone watch cartoons on Saturday morning anymore? Does anyone watch cartoons syndicated something like this? Right? The idea being that we're Homer Simpson in this equation. We try to make a choice and we're guided constantly by two equal but opposed impulses. Some think that this meme started as early as the mid-second century. The writers of The Simpsons are always in on these deep jokes, right? It didn't quite make it into our Bibles, but the shepherd of Hermas says, there are two angels with a human, one of righteousness and the other of iniquity. And I doubt the writer of The Shepherd of Hermas had in mind cartoons and comic books. But there's a serious undertone to all this. Good and evil are all around us and are within us. Each choice we make every day has, is fraught with a chance for God or for sin. The Apostle Paul talks about this in ways, uh, he, he normally uses the word like sarks, the flesh, to talk about these warring impulses. Um, we even get some of this language uh, in our own American story when one of our greatest leaders, Abraham Lincoln, in his first inaugural address, um, attends to a country in turmoil and appeals that we might um, uh, let our better angels of our nature come out, right? So th this, is, this is a big time theme. This is a captivating proposal, one that should keep us on our toes. One that should make us check ourselves when every decision we make seems a little too easy or our intuition drives us too automatically. Before we gather around the table for communion later, we confess together. And the first part of our confession is from the Book of Common Prayer. Marcus asks, is this, should this slide be here already, right? It says, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against thee in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved thee with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We confess not only for the things that we've done, the things we've left undone, sins that we've committed and sins that we've omitted. It's important that we pray these words and that we pray them together and that we realize our failure to love God with our whole heart and to love our neighbors as ourselves, and that that failure is the result of this war that is going on in us and above us and around us, between God and not God. That's kind of the subplot of the book of Revelation. Sometimes we're, we're in the fight. Sometimes we're collateral damage of this fight, but there's no opting out. One of the main goals of Revelation is not to convince us of this sort of cosmic conflict, but to show us what it looks like. To give us a wild vision and like a tinny taste in our mouths of just what the stakes are and just what the outcome always is, was, and will be. That's why for all of the helpfulness of this 
good angel Homer that normally tells Homer to like go home to Marge and parent Bart and Maggie and Lisa, or the bad angel Homer that sends him to spend more time with Mo drinking Duff beer and pestering his devout neighbor Ned Flanders, right? But let's not get lulled into thinking that Homer, this ne'er-do-well, is not involved in a fight that, let's not, let's not think that this fight is fair, that it's evenly matched, that it's just as likely that good Homer and bad Homer are gonna win. They're not, they're enemies, but they are absolutely not rivals, these two warring factions. This is where we are with three chapters left in John's apocalyptic vision. We have three weeks left in our summer study of these kaleidoscopic images that reveal not anything too new about God, but they kind of cut and paste and, and put together things we've heard and think we've known into a new and strange portrait. So we've been on the other end of the correspondences to seven churches who need to be reminded who they are and who the Christ they serve actually is. We've gathered around the throne. This is Revelation 5, right? And sung our lungs out like we did today with saints and martyrs, throwing every accolade, not at some warrior king, but at a slaughtered lamb who takes away the sins of the world and reigns victoriously through his wounds. We're reminded that all this is a global affair. Persons of every tribe, tongue, people, nation are shouting blessing, honor, power, wealth, wisdom, strength, glory, praise. This is like a, th- a worship thesaurus, right? And we behold this lamb because when we do, we are seeing the revelation of God. The revelation of how the world really is and how the world really works. And the revelation of who we are and who we can be once again. All of this happens in the midst of this great opposition, this great war. None of it in a laboratory or under ideal conditions. None of it is even happening on the home field. When, when you're in a competition, you always want to have home field advantage. That's prior to chapter 20, we've been reckoning with this place called Babylon. It's, it's the definition of not being on your home field, but you've become a resident of this sinful place. But now we're being fitted for a new home, a once and forever more residence with God. So the conflict comes to a head. It's moving day, which means it's time to get rid of all the junk that is taking up too much space in this world. So our chapter 20 opens with a good angel holding the keys to this celestial prison for the unholy trinity, the dragon, the old snake, and the Satan. And he gets locked up for a thousand years. So we haven't done this a whole lot with this series, but I'm going to go on a little sidebar because I feel like a couple people would be disappointed if I didn't mention some of the architecture of the millennium here. Does, did anyone grow up with any of these like frameworks for understanding Revelation or like your whole life, like pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial? Does anyone know what this is? So we're going to go through it really fast because uh, like I read through this the first the first time just in scripture, and I didn't even realize that I missed it, and so I got to the end, and I was like, oh, where's all that stuff that all those people are really worked up about, right? Um, But it's there, and it's in our passage today, right? So first off, um, I'm going to try to be charitable, but I'm also going to try to, like, give a little bit of an analysis of some of the 
the uh, shadow sides of some of the, the ways uh, that, that we uh, sort and order and collate this into these theories. And keep in mind, they're all theories, right? So the first one is, it was founded by a guy named Cyrus Schofield. Isn't that an amazing name? And he had a whole Bible um, that came out in 1909, the Schofield Study Bible. And for how um, weird some of his conclusions came, his stuff is beautiful. Look at this chart that, like, I'm not allowed in my sermons anymore. I have, like, a self-imposed moratorium on Venn diagrams. So I'm going to start using, like, Schofield-style circles and dispensations, right? But Schofield was kind of the godfather of premillennial dispensationalism. And the, 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 the key move here is that Jesus is going to return before the thousand years. And then it's going to be a thousand years. It's going to be a time of peace and justice, and Jesus has to come back to usher that in. In certain strands of this, and there's all kinds of variations, but in certain strands of this, this also involves the church being raptured up to the heavens. Does this start to sound familiar, right? Some good things about this. I think it really takes seriously that this world is full of sin, and it seriously, seriously hopes for a rescue. Some bad things about this, I think it's pretty darn pessimistic. And this is kind of the hell in a handbasket kind of way of looking at the world. And it's like literally escapist. And it hopes that we escape out of this world rather than hoping for Jesus to come into our world. I don't think there's a great imagination that God can actually break into and defeat death by death in this place. I don't think there's much of an imagination that God can redeem a sick and a sin-scarred world without, like, scrapping the whole thing and starting over. So we, we, we need to come to some of the logical consequences of these things. So that's pre-millennial. You can put up the next slide, I think. This is, like, cheat sheet, right? Post-millennial, it's just that. Jesus comes back after the thousand years, right? And this is, like... Uh, kind of a, a reaction to premillennialism and is, is upheld by like really smart guys like Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield, who is certainly no liberal at all. But the cool thing about postmillennialism is it says we have to, to pave a road for Jesus to come. And, and that can either happen in bad ways, like things are going to get bad so Jesus is going to come, or in good ways, that we're going to build this kingdom. So post-millennialists uh, do kind of cool things, like they're, they're kind of optimistic, and they're really activistic. They're involved in, in social reform programs, and they're, they're, they also tend to be really evangelical, uh, because part, part of the move to get Jesus to come back is that all of the nations are going to be gathered around in worship. Revelation 5 is the expectation. Um, some of the downfalls to this, and, and these are my opinions, right, is that I don't think there's a great imagination for just how drastic of an overhaul that we need here. That I don't think that it, it's acknowledged just that progress alone can't help us. I think, uh, I think there's a risk here in becoming really tired and disillusioned when, when all the, of our best plans, our best laid plans just like eventually don't work, or we get worn out. We see how little we can actually really do to bring this kingdom because it's not up to us. And we, we, we feel really uh, challenged by just how formidable these 
quote, patterns of the world, like Romans 12 says, how, how deep these grooves are in ourselves and in our world. So that's post-millennialism. And then finally, amillennialism. And there's like a historic thread of this that is like St. Augustine. There's some other ways of doing this. And, and this uh, is just that. It's, it's, it's like not a millennial, right? Not an exact thousand years. And this probably has some resonances with the way we've been talking about numbers and revelation, that they're signals and that they turn us on to realities that um, are maybe not literal but really serious, right? Um, uh, good things about amillennialists is that they take into account a mix of good and bad that is always present everywhere. And they also uh, know that, that our, the way our time works is in this already but not yet. Jesus already reigns but not yet in full. In fact, that's where we get our word for secular. Christians always think of secular as like not Christian. And it actually means not yet. Like it's this in-between space of mixture, this seculum. And so... Um, uh, I think some of this is pretty cool, but I also think if we're not careful and if this becomes like a philosophy and not a story, it, it, it flattens out and there's not a whole lot of expectation and we also like let some of the slack out of this tension. Whenever your, your whole program is built around attention, it, once you start letting slack out, things don't work. Either the, the already get, gets really ballooned out or the not yet does, and, and it makes it has serious consequences for how we do ethics, how we how we treat people, what we expect. You can see these stakes here. What we believe about the end affects our ethics and our politics now. We we can see some of the important like hopes in common for all these these ways of of slicing this up. But there's even though there's differences in these interpretive approaches. In all of them, there is a presence of sin and of death and a recognition that God wins and will win and that God is on the throne. It's just a matter of when and how, right? So sidebar ended. So all of the above activity before that, when the unholy trinity, that, that was an amazing turn of phrase that one of the commentators talked, talked about of the dragon, the old snake, and Satan. When the unholy trinity gets thrown into the dumpster and the liar in chief gets locked up in this powerful act, it seems clear, it seems like it clears some space for true judgment to happen. Right after uh, these liars go to jail, then the real throne emerges, people inhabit that throne, and true judgment happens. There was too much chatter before, there was too many deceptions, too many half truths, too many outright lies. Too many warped, too many divided, too many misdirected hearts. So now instead of death ruling, resurrection is on the throne. And this, is, this is when we start to see resurrection getting this central spot in the story. I think there's some really deep truth here. Too often death sits on the throne in our lives. Like death occupies the center of our judgment. can only imagine things, and this is like real life things, based on the idea that death is the key threat, like the to be avoided at all cost product of our lives. Think about how this guides you every day. Think about what you're most scared of. I mean, we should do potluck table prompts. What are you most afraid of in this world? Stranger, yeah. 
Think about the ways that you protect yourself. Yeah, that's the next question. What are you most protective of in your life? What do you not want people to mess with you physically, emotionally, socially? Think about the ways you're scared to death or at least some measure of the suffering that goes along with it and it makes you afraid uh, like for other people that you love, afraid for your kids, afraid for your family, afraid for your friends. Think about the way fearing death like makes you not very generous, makes you not very thankful, makes you not very hospitable or makes you not very approachable or not very willing to change your mind. Or not very willing to be uncomfortable for someone else's sake, or not very willing to go without. Because string enough of these losses together, and you might actually be headed for the ultimate loss, capital L, death. I remember listening to this podcast a while back, and um, they were talking about the, uh, some time in therapy. And this therapist was trying to unwind some of these hidden cycles of of fear and of shame by interrogating, by asking questions of yourself to help unmask some of these hidden motivations. Like, how this works is like, when you start to feel fear guiding you, and sometimes you even need other people to, to show you that that's what's happening. When you start to feel fear guiding you, ask yourself. Like for instance, in your relationship with a spouse or a friend, when you start to feel yourself uh, muscling up because you're in a disagreement or an argument, ask yourself, why am I afraid to be wrong here now? And answer that question, that's step two. You might answer something like, because if I'm wrong, it, it's going to hurt my pride. I'm, I'm proud and it's going to hurt my pride. And then ask the next question. And like you keep going down the spiral here. You say, why am I afraid for my pride to be hurt? You might answer something like, because it might make me feel small or less. And then you say, why am I afraid to feel small or less? And you say, because it makes me feel unsafe. It makes me feel vulnerable or fragile. Like I could be hurt or like someone might leave me. Then ask yourself, why? Am I afraid to be vulnerable or abandoned? You say, because it might make me lonely. It might make me feel insignificant. I wouldn't have anyone or anything. I'd be practically dead. <laughs> and you say, why am I afraid of death? See, because it feels like the end. So think, think also, about how this happens like on a larger scale. That's on a personal level, and this happens societally as well. In our culture, that preys on this kind of fear. This fear keeps stacking up. This is what is operating in society, in our society when we have antagonisms and polarization. A friend of mine wrote, uh, when we allow ourselves to be determined by what we're only against uh, and by our fear and anger that accompany it, we defeat what God might actually be doing in the conflict, not despite the conflict, but in the conflict itself. This is why, like, in our society, there's always this ramped up rhetoric that surrounds people who are different from us, refugees and immigrants most notably, and it always flexes a muscle for defensiveness and danger. We're scared of them because we're scared of death. And if you can like bottle this fear up and direct it in certain ways at certain people, you can really do some pretty notable damage. 
There's some really gross and active ways that fear gets leveraged on us and in us. But I think also about the ways that fear makes us distracted. We, we either get tired and so we distract ourselves or we're easily distracted. Something is seemingly silly and benign is our like fear of missing out. I wouldn't chart that as like a top 10 fear, but FOMO is real. And it's normally tied nowadays to technologies that distract us from real people and real joys and real problems and real pains and real moments and memories that are right in front of us because uh, we can be everywhere and kind of nowhere. And I think FOMO is also tied to the same fear. Fear that will be insignificant or out of touch. Fear that if we don't exist in someone else's mind right now or know what's going on with them, then we don't exist anymore. We're scared to death of death, so we get distracted to death. It's really ironic and it's really sad. And to boot, usually someone else has figured a way to profit off of this too, right? It's easy to get really deep and really dark real fast with these sorts of questions. They're, they're not really meant to add further weight or despair to something that already feels heavy, but like these, these questions that we're asking, they're meant to be brave, spirit-led, mini apocalypses uh, about the operating assumptions that then like trickle up into our low-grade anxieties and insecurities that, that happen all around us and constantly. But the good news of Jesus the Christ is that death has been defeated. It is death. Death is an enemy, but death is not a rival. It must be accounted for, but it has already been reckoned with. Death is no longer the floor that drives or animates us because it is no longer the end. Instead, the end is only the beginning. Death comes before resurrection. Resurrection is now on the throne. Abandonment is no longer possible because Jesus raided the grave and broke the locks, thereby flee, freeing the captives, freeing us. This is the perfected love which cast out fear and our fears. This is the death which defeated death and brings us life. So to combat that sort of fear, all these little fears that add up to this big fear or are built on this big fear, we have to resist. We have to imagine differently. We have to come to the realization that this isn't a fair fight. I, I think of a song a few years back. Has anyone ever listened to music by Bob Dylan's son, Jacob Dylan? He's, oh, he's one of my favorites. He's so good. So handsome, too. Yes. Um, but he's got a song called Evil is Alive and Well. And it's a really appealing song because it came out right when No Country for Old Men came out. And they were kind of tied together. And both of those works of art share like a similar dread that evil gets embodied in overwhelming ways that we feel trapped in. Evil seems to go ahead of us and outpace us and shape shift and trick us. And it's a pretty convincing description that holds true all too often. But I stand here and I foolishly proclaim only because of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb, that evil is not alive and well. That's the good news. Evil has died, and any moves that it makes are desperate moves of defeat. I, I'm, I'm, I kind of feel guilty or weird saying that, because I'm not, 
I'm so often like bubble wrapped and insulated from the, the actual like consequences of that, that I should be more afraid and that others are rightfully more afraid of death. But uh, I can only stand here and foolishly say that evil is not alive and evil is not well. We're told that the devil, the beast, and the false prophet are all expelled. They're thrown into the trash heap, and death and the grave give up the dead that were in them, and they're thrown into a lake of fire to be destroyed. Revelation scholar Adela Yarbrough Collins puts it, this is the definitive defeat of Satan, and it implies that even though chaos is irrepressible, it is less powerful and it is less real than creative order. God is creating and recreating and ordering this chaos. Again, I remind us, Death and chaos are enemies, but they are not rivals for God and God's good purposes. There is like a fundamental asymmetry. They are not matches, either in strength or in kind. It's not the case of an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder with equal sway that we just kind of flip back and forth and make a decision. Nor is it really that, like, the case that Satan is willing to do or be for you anything close to what the Lord and the Lamb is and does. Like, one steals, kills, and destroys, and the other gives his very life, once and for all and consistently for us. Sin and death, Jesus and life, they're certainly enemies, but they are not rivals. Rivals means that they are peers and they are mutually respected that the game goes back and forth and that there's some level of intrigue on how it's going to pan out and if the home team can really do it. But the white rider from chapter 19 and the white throne from chapter 20 disabuse us of any thought that any of this was ever close or that sin and death were ever more than like a grasping, flailing team of phonies trying to slag down the champion who won before he even stepped in the ring. That Jesus has outlasted the very worst thing possible and brought us in on it. Once death was overcome on the cross and empty tomb by Jesus, it was overcome for us and for all forever. Our challenge is to know that. To feel that, to trust that, to witness that, to make that like our operating system in this world. And to no longer fear. So yeah, well... It may seem like evil is alive and well. Nothing could be further from the truth. Evil's days are numbered and its current actions in and around us are desperate and fleeting. They are no match for the lamb who is slain. They have no place in God's coming kingdom. I love that song that Katie led us in um, because it shows us who the kingdom really belongs to. It looks nothing like fear and shame and death. So, friends, don't be afraid. Easy to say, right? So often fear leads to our distraction or our despair. We should be driven to thoughts and prayers instead, I think. But not like milk toast thoughts and prayers that you like tweet out just to cover your hind. Like the kind of thoughts that are like deep discernment about what God is up to and deep faith. The kind of prayer of action and resistance that Karl Barth says um, to clasp hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. That's, that's prayer, right? We've been given everything we need for this and, and more than we need. 
We've been given Christ's own presence. We've been given God's creative spirit, which allows us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the Lord of life, and the beginner and finisher of our faith. He's the faithful one. And we're given hope. We're given hope, um, as John Donne penned, that death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Amen. In Christ, it's already so. Will you all pray with me? Uh, Lord, it feels uh, really risky to say these things because uh, we look out and we see how powerful sin and death um, look in this world. We look within and we see how powerful sin and death uh, feel to us and how real. Uh, Lord, grow in us imaginations that that aren't just um, nice thoughts but are uh, deep convictions, uh, things that we witness to and things that that um, control um, our approach to the world, our, our ethics and uh, what we expect. Uh, open our eyes and ears and hearts and minds and hands to, to join with you in this kingdom work, uh, even now in this, this in-between. Uh, thanks for the, the ways that you've already shown up. Uh, grow our hearts, um, and help us hunger and thirst for the ways that you've not yet come. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.